The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello, and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Walsh. And I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer. So as you can hear from the ambient music in the background and some of the excitement around us, you can tell we're here we are again live at Amazon Remars Conference 2019, where we see the great intersection of things like machine learning, automation, robotics, and space. And on that third note, we have some interesting guests because we're going to focus on this episode on the robotics aspect, which provides some interesting guidance. So for today, we have as our guests, Kathleen will introduce our guests. Yes, today we actually are joined by two guests. We have Erica Engel, who is the co-founder and director of education for RISE, and Adam Cantor, who is the director of engineering at RISE. So welcome, guys, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. We'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background and what you're currently doing at RISE. So Erica, let's start with you. Sure. So I'm a co-founder and the director of education for RISE, which stands for Robots in Service of the Environment. You know, my husband and I are passionate about environmental causes and we love robotics. And I think to some extent, a little bit masochistic, we like to start businesses and build things. And so this was a passion of ours and we decided to found RISE in order to, you know, create robots to solve problems. And My personal background, so I went to MIT for undergrad and then did my PhD in biochemistry at Boston University School of Medicine. Passionate about education, I have a company called Science from Scientists that actually works with RISE in creating and deploying content to inspire the next generation and to really teach them about the different problems that are happening in the community and the environment and just inspire them in STEM. And so there's sort of a natural complement there between the two organizations. Great. And Adam? Uh, So I have been in engineering robotics for the last 10 years or so, and sometimes been multiple projects at once. I was actually in the Humanoid Challenge for DARPA. I worked on autonomous driving, autonomous prosthetic limbs at Vanderbilt Medical at Georgia Tech, where I did my master's. I also worked in bio-inspired design, fire ant-like robots, snake-like robots. Some of them actually are here as well. Snake robot team is also here. And then... I currently actually have a nine to five at iRobot, where I work in new product R&D and for sensors and full robots. And at the same time, I am also the director of engineering for RSE. So tell us a little about the story of RSE. How did this come about? What was the foundation of this idea? And kind of how did it come to where we are now? Absolutely. So my husband and I are avid divers. We love to scuba dive. And we were in Bermuda, one of our favorite places to go. And we were invited to join a diving trip from some of our friends who are involved in various environmental and educational causes. One of them was the curator of shipwrecks. What a wonderful job to be able to go scuba diving every day. And the other couple were involved with beauty the Bermuda Underwater Exploration Institute. We were on their boat diving and suddenly, you know, we saw in the water these fish that, you know, I remembered seeing when I was actually diving in Indonesia in a very different region of the world. And when we surfaced, there was a conversation about what these fish are and they're called lionfish. They're native, obviously not to the Atlantic, but to the Indo-Pacific. And they're an invasive species. They have no natural predators. They eat juvenile reef fish at an insanely quick rate and replicate very quickly. So 30 to 40,000 eggs every between four 
four and five days that they give out. And so this is a, a huge problem in the Caribbean and they're found as far north as Boston, as far south as Brazil. And, you know, we just thought, gee, this is something that, you know, recreational diving can sort of solve the very tip of the iceberg because, you know, recreational divers can dive down to about 100 feet with their spear guns and, and pick these things off one by one, but they replicate at depth. And so in order to reach those depths, you really need a different solution. And so our friends actually turned to us and said, hey, why don't, why don't you just build a robot to solve this problem? And, you know, we were intrigued and so decided to found RISE, Robots in Service of the Environment, with this being the first project, uh, this lionfish capturing robot. Uh, of course, the plan is in the future to address other things as well, but this is our first project, and so Rise was born. Excellent. So, Adam, you have the nine to five on the robotics side working for iRobot. So, how did you get roped into this project, or harpooned, or or sucked <laughs> into it? <laughs> Spear gunned <laughs> into the uh, project. We hope you're enjoying this podcast, and sorry for the brief interruption. Cognolytica not only produces the AI podcast that you're listening to right now, but we also generate research and advisory to help companies make sense of AI and cognitive technologies. We also run the most authoritative vendor-neutral AI and machine learning training and certification on the market. If you're looking to make AI a reality for your organization, our three-day Cognolytica training is for you. If you're interested in attending, you can find pricing and registration on our website at Cognolytica.com. We'll also provide a link in the show notes. We've met many of our podcast listeners in our classes, and we hope that we'll see you there as well. Now back to the podcast. So when uh, pretty soon after Colin and Erica came back from this trip, they came to their friends, associates, people in nautical robots, people in environmental causes, university, and said, you know, can we build a robot that does this? And I was one of those early folks who got pulled into these just spitballing conversations. Like, oh, well, you could mount a spear gun on an air tank and attach thrusters to that, or maybe we just kept working through it and working through it. And pretty quickly, we sort of hit on a, you know, electrofishing and some other things. But immediately I was like, this is somewhere I can apply my passions for the environment, for bio-inspired design. And we actually have certainly learned some lessons from the lionfish that we incorporate into the robot. And it definitely went from there and just pulled me in. And the more I've been in it, the more responsibility I've taken on. I started as just a you know normal level engineer and it's been almost three years now. And I've been director of engineering for the last about one and a half. And there's been a huge amount of growth in the team and improvement on the robots since then. One of the things that was really important to us in the founding of Rise was that these would be scalable, affordable robots. You know, you see every day in academia, people inventing the million dollar one-off robot to solve <laughs> some kind of problem. And it just doesn't scale. It doesn't work. And so, again, one of the founding premises of Rise was that if you can create using low-cost robotics, things that scale efficiently or that incentivize a certain user to use use that technology. And so again, this, the robot is made to be you know, less than $1,000 in cost, hopefully less, you know, even more over time. And if you, know, you were to deploy a fleet of these where commercial fishermen could make a living using them to fish for lionfish, which is now it's a sustainable mm. source of food, so you don't have to go and overfish other species, you can make a living and it, it starts to really make sense. Yeah. Now, the relationship between iRobot and Rise, you know, exists a little in the fact that Colin Angle was the co-founder of iRobot, and he's still there, and Rise, Erica, is his wife. So, that 
that is a great relationship because it allows you a lot of expertise and knowledge and experience that you can bring to the table. And I know, Adam, that you work at iRobot, so you probably see this every day. For our listeners that may not be very well versed with robotics and experience it every day, this is a much longer life cycle and go to market than some of the other use cases that we talk about on our podcast. So can you talk to us about some of the challenges that you've encountered with the design and the deployment of this underwater robot and maybe how long it takes to, you know, go through an iteration? Sure. So our very first Mark One actually was the stun and suction system by a diver. So a diver is holding it and has a button that turns on the stun and a button that turns on the suction. And that was something that was put together very quickly. And that's very, fairly simple. And uh, it was done within the first maybe six months of the establishment of Rise. And so I came in right after that to wrap an ROV around it. And that is an exponential step in difficulty. And that's where this, you know, you to go from a point and click you know, simple, just a, you mean electromechanical design, but no intelligence, there's no learning, there's no feedback loop. And you had to add, or we had to add all of that in one version, jump straight from one to the other. And the challenges were many. And I remember first big publicity thing we did in Bermuda, the first fish we caught, we actually had to have two drivers, one for the stun and capture system and one for the ROV. And the two were not actually connected. So you had two drivers, two laptops, two controllers, and we would have to talk to each other and be like, okay, I'm almost ready. Here I go. I'm about to get the fish. Stun him. Get him. Good. And like, oh, great. All right. Now I'll get closer. And then, okay, suck him in. Get him. Grab him. And so when we were testing early on, it took a lot of coordination and it was very much a dance. And then the next version, the very next version, we finally started integrating these things. Went down to one controller, which was nice, and one laptop. Life got easy. And that let us finally just hop on boats, join anyone going out in the world. But that there is the next big challenge for something like this. When you deploy an app or deploy machine learning, you can do it all on one computer, one laptop, and you can broadcast it to the internet and get feedback immediately from your customers, your user base. But when you have hardware of any kind, and especially hardware meant for a specific environment, really you have to go. Eventually you can do it in simulation, which we do now. But to start with, you have to learn. You gotta learn from people who know, so you need to find local knowledge, local lion fishermen, spear fishermen, go down there physically which in this case means scuba diving. And those are skills that not everyone has, but I'm happy to have an outlet because I love to dive. And this has been a great you know, thing for me to do that. Uh, and so those are the huge challenges that you just don't see in normal machine learning applications. And I think part of the reason why I bring up iRobot is because one of the things that iRobot has as a corporation is sort of, I don't want to say democratized robotics, but has brought the idea of consumer robotics, which maybe mm -hmm. when, when iRobot was found was something from the Jetsons or, <laughs> or basically just theory into reality. And I think one of the great things about Rise is that you can apply some of those same concepts of the consumer or the, uh, the more accessible approach to robotics. So maybe you could talk about some of the challenges of basically taking what might have been, I think we, I heard anecdotally a story about the cost of thrusters, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, things like how can maybe people who are listening who may be interested mm -hmm. in more accessible robotics, what can they learn that maybe that you learned? What can they learn from you? Basically? Sure. I'm going to I'll 
talk high level and Adam knows a lot of the stats, so I'll pass it off to him. But, you know, again, what was mentioned earlier was the significance of the scalability of the model needing to have the price be what it is. You know, we're fortunate in that we have connections to companies who also are willing, because this is a charity, to give us a good deal on some of the bits that are necessary. And to some extent, you know, most companies are, in fact, philanthropic. I mean, they they want to make a difference. And so, you know, we've been able to leverage those relationships and get some of the products at lower cost. But I think maybe Adam, go for it. You know the stats. Sure. So the thruster is a great example. So you can buy off-the-shelf thrusters that are exactly the ones we used to use for the first two versions of the robot. And you can spend about $200 per thruster today, off-the-shelf, including shipping, to get those thrusters for your project, which is fine if you want to make one or two of something. But we want to make thousands and make them accessible to everyone. So we knew that was immediately impossible. So we're taking advantage of some of these volunteers that our cause are from iRobot. They're specialists in manufacturing engineering. And I also have done products for iRobot that are meant to be sold in the millions. So not only are the contract manufacturers very kind and often will pretend that we're getting higher volumes than we really are, but also when you jump in and say, we know we want to produce these in mass. We're not going to start with 3D printing every part because that's going to cost us a lot of money. So maybe an initial prototype will be 3D printed, but we're going to go straight to tooling, steel parts, injection molding, vacuum forming. And we have those experiences in our volunteers that we're totally taking advantage of. Uh, and I just a brief thing on taking advantage of our volunteers. Some companies, including iRobot, have professional development programs. And at iRobot and at Google, they 10% or I think Google's 20% time let you spend some of your work week on professional development, growing as a technical person, an engineer, or sometimes just a person. And we take advantage of those for our volunteers. So not all our volunteers are at iRobot, but many of them have these programs. And we are happy to let you risk you know, growing with us rather than let your company take on the risk of trying, you know, stretching and possibly failing. We'd rather you fail and our volunteers fail with us for free. So that's one of the things that's been really great about this relationship with iRobot and similar companies. Sounds great. So sort of piggybacking, but not really piggybacking on that question. I want to ask about, because I know a lot of our listeners, we talk about these seven patterns of artificial intelligence that seem to continuously come up, no matter whether you're talking about AI for medical imaging or chatbots or predictive analytics. It's like these seven patterns just keep coming up. And one of those, of course, is the recognition pattern, being able to recognize things. The other one, of mm-hmm. course, is this autonomous pattern, which are systems that, that could basically run by themselves. Now, I know that sort of where RiseBot right currently is, is there's still a lot of human in the loop to do things. But you know, can you talk a little bit about maybe how you may be thinking about or potentially incorporating some of these other patterns of artificial intelligence into the bot experience? Sure. So currently, to your point, you when you fly the robot, it's like a video game. You have a, a game controller and there's a camera on the front of the robot. You see that sort of the vision of what the robot sees from the front end. You approach the lionfish and you have to visually identify the lionfish. Thankfully, lionfish are really, really yeah. obvious as to what they look like. <laughs> they look like lions and fishes as much. They're very pretty, but they almost have like these flange like pieces that are coming off their tops and sides and they're very easy to identify. And because they have no natural predators, they just have a tendency to float out in the open, whereas all the rest of the fish 
aren't quite so bold. So, you know, the robot approaches lionfish, lionfish just stays there. A robot approaches any other fish, the first fish swims away. So it's not currently you can do this without that software and that identification. That being said, the new version of the robot actually is going to have that ability to specifically identify the lionfish to make it, you know, 100% obvious and easier for the user in order to, you know, to go and collect them. So that is the plan. Autonomy, we have to talk about that. You know, I, I think one of the things right now that works with this model is the idea of, you know, at the price point, being able to sell it to, you know, a commercial fisherman or someone who can then go and make a livelihood if this is their method of capturing fish and then selling them to restaurants or to seafood markets or whatever and keeping them in the loop. But I do think the goal over time is to increase the amount of autonomy. Yep. And to that end, and there's tons of ends in that direction, we currently are talking about recognizing the lionfish. Also part of this, and we'll be showing that as well soon, is sort of wrapped into the release we did. We're also doing scene learning. So we're looking at the motion of the world around the robot and the robot state itself, and are also implementing autonomy in that range. So, you know, how do you look at things that are moving fast and say, well, is it big or is it close? And is it moving quickly or is it large and far away? Like these kind of questions, because we're using one camera. It's nice and cheap. You add a little extra processing power to do it. And iRobots work in that vein of having small, you know, visual robots running around at low cost is extremely useful. And what they're doing with their Roomba is useful. And I wouldn't say available. We can't just take the thing. But it's a blueprint that we can use very minimal change. And we also are very open source. And obviously the products like that aren't. So we're doing it our own way and they do it their way, but it's been a fantastic guide. There's one other thing too. You know, the big question, of course, once you have a functional robot is making sure you know where to go to find the lionfish. And so there's even an effort through visual identification of the terrain that lionfish are commonly found in because, I mean, the ocean is very big. And so if you kind of knew what that terrain looked like, you'd have a better chance of finding them more consistently. Yeah, and we're trying to do a reel for our users eventually, and we're really putting a lot of effort into it right now in this summer. We want to have a heat map, if you will. So even if uh, no one's ever been to a site, we can still provide a map that says the topography plus the water temperature plus the current plus the bottom like reefs versus corals can suggest like maybe you should try here. And that's something we absolutely want day one for our users to say, well, I don't know reefs personally, but I have a map and I can start. And that will be done with machine learning. That will be an AI algorithm taking this data in and projecting these things. It's just not feasible to have a person look at all of this data and paint, right, hand draw these maps on there. Just isn't reasonable. And machine learning is the answer for that. That's great. And these are really good examples and use cases. So we're excited to continue to see where this project goes. For our listeners that are not familiar with it, how can they get a hold of you? What's the website? Sure. We're always looking for volunteers. We've got roboticists, we have computer scientists, we have designers, illustrators, PR folks. I mean, there's a team of hundreds of volunteers. The website is robotsise.org. All right, great. We also have a Facebook, a Twitter, LinkedIn. Okay. I believe that's all of them. (laughs) <laughs> Lots of social media. Yeah. For some of our listeners that may perhaps want to contribute some technical help or maybe even some parts, we do have a lot of vendors that, that listen to our stuff. Is there a way that they can contribute on the technology side as well, the, or maybe supplier side? What can they do to help or contribute? Absolutely. I mean, I think reach out through the website if you're interested and we'll schedule a follow-up call or meeting and, and tell you more or send you information. 
I think that's the best way to, to approach that. Yeah, and for that kind of thing, there is a dedicated email, and a, it's info at our, you know, robotsise.org. So it's just info at and then the same website. Great, and we'll make sure to link that in the show notes. So Erica and Adam, we want to thank you so much for joining us on this podcast today. And we'd like to end with a final note where what do you believe the future of AI is in general and its application to corporations and beyond? This time, Adam, we'll start with you. I was hoping you'd go the other way. All right. Then, okay. And oh, Erica, okay. we'll start with you. Yeah. You know, it's it's been so interesting coming to this conference. I'm a biochemist by training, so don't have you know a ton of background when it comes to machine learning and AI. But in watching all of the different presentations, there have been so many different applications in the biomedical sciences, helping you know radiologists and doctors being able to identify diseases earlier to you know being able to provide technology so that, you know, people in the most remotest areas of the world have access to internet, you know, improving standards of living and such. I mean, there's just a million applications. I think from my perspective, I'm really excited because I'm a biomedical scientist in the applications and helping people live longer, improving, you know, drug discovery efficacy and timelines and helping cure diseases. But frankly, you know, there's wonderful demonstrations here about the smart home and being able to live more independently if you're, you know, elderly and all the technology that's there that's going to help you have a you know better quality of life. Adam. Okay, I'm ready now. So I was thinking back on all of the keynotes and the, the little closed-door sessions and even what Erica said in her talk, and there I realized there is something that people poke at all the time, but you don't ever hear it said like more plainly. So the thing that I am most excited for is the general use of ML for prediction, for predictive modeling. You hear it every once in a while. Usually it's pretty straightforward, like physics. Like they're, It's a physical system and they're predicting the next state. But I think we'll see soon that prediction can extend much beyond and that from cues and different things, you can figure out what a user is trying to do, improve their user experience. You might be able to figure out what a purchaser, a buyer wants next. And I know that Amazon's doing some of that. I know other you know, ads are trying to do that, but I think you'll see it in a much broader sense, much bolder uses soon. All right, excellent. Well, once again, I did want to thank you both. You guys were amazing guests. You were, I think, provide a lot of great insight to our audience. And we encourage our folks who are listening to you to engage and to support this very valuable cause. So really, thank you again for participating in this podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the time. It's fun. Yeah. Thank you both for joining us today. And listeners, as always, we'll post any articles and concepts discussed in the show notes, as well as a link to their website. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next podcast. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter and more, please visit our website at cognolitica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group. And make sure to join the Cognolytica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also, subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play, and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyright by Cognolytica. All rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast.